I'm Matt. I'm one of the pastors, and it's really good to be with you all uh, this morning. Uh, if you're looking for some seats, there's some right here in the front. That, that, would that be helpful? No? With a baby, preferably. It's Christmas. We're fine with babies. Uh, again, I'm Matt. I'm one of the pastors. Really good to be with you this morning. I am... I don't know why I'm so excited about this sermon. It's not because I really don't know why, but all morning I've just been excited about the fact that I get to preach this to you, to get to talk to you about uh, what the Word says. So we're in Matthew chapter 1. This is the third week on our, of our Advent series. Um, so uh, the scripture is going to be on the screen, but um, follow along. If you, yeah, no, just follow along on the screen. <laughs> Matthew chapter 1. Verse 18 says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they had come together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Well, um, last week, Mike got to talk to us a little bit about um, the, the narrative surrounding uh, Mary finding out what the, the reality of her future was going to look like. And um, it's a vivid picture, and I think we're probably most familiar in particular with, with Mary's account because, I mean, it, it's, it's so grandiose, it's so surprising, um, and, uh, and that's, that's all captured in Luke. But, but Matthew takes a different tack and, and talks about the, the encounter of, of Joseph with the reality that he was about to be a father to the one who would save the world. And so let's put this in context a little bit. Um, the angel says... Uh, it says, and her husband Joseph being a just man. So the, the context is, of course, that by this point, somehow uh, Mary has communicated to Joseph that indeed she's, she's pregnant. And so, I, I, again, this is one of those times where you can try to overdo the, like, take you back to Palestinian times. But you, you have to just, just take a moment and think about the fact that Joseph is planning on marrying this woman. We don't know how long they've been waiting to get married. Usually it takes some time. And, and he finds himself having a conversation with Mary at some point where she says, I'm pregnant. Now, sometimes that's really good news, and sometimes that's really scary news. I know what it's like to have it be scary news. Um, but it's... it's to, to Joseph, his whole world suddenly is falling apart. Can you imagine those words? The only thing he can think of is he can say, listen, Mary, I know you're sincere. He's thinking... You sound like, like, like you mean this, and I, and I want to believe you. You've been nothing but sincere over the course of our courtship. But you had to have sex with somebody. Like, it's just, I mean, come on. It must be. It must be. That's the only reality that can really unfold here. 
And so it says that he's a just man and he's unwilling to put her away, to put her to shame. Uh, and so he resolves, he decides, you know, what I'm going to do is I'm going to quietly divorce her. He's an honorable man. I think one of the things it says is that he's, he's, he's honorable in the sense he's just, like he's faithful to the law. Like he, he has to look and say, I need to do this in light of what you've chosen to do. He's not a harsh man, clearly, but he's also kind. He's, he's willing to bring public, he's not willing to bring public disgrace to her, which would have been the natural thing. It's actually the best way for him to clear his name is to make outrage about the situation. So he's not self-righteous. He's not punitive. He's moral, but he's without being moralistic. So he thinks through, think, he thinks through the facts. You can see he's considering. He's saying, I hear what she's saying, but I don't know what to do with this. And so here's what I decide. And he goes to sleep. And the angel of the Lord meets him in his sleep. Now, I don't know, maybe you're one of those people, and I know people who, who have had experiences of having God talk to them or having visions in their sleep. So this is not like, oh, only weird things happen. No, no, this, is, this happens across the world, actually. Um, but an angel of the Lord appears to him, and it must be so vivid, so clear, so significant, so unmistakable that it changes the course of his life. But the fascinating thing is what the angel of the Lord says. He says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary to be your wife. Don't be afraid to take Mary to be your wife. Now, most of the time when an, when an angel encounters a person, their first words are, do not fear, because it's all this panic that goes on. What is going on? And I'm afraid. Maybe there's like the dream angel experience. That's not where you start. I don't know. Again, I'm not personal experience. But all I know is this, is that the angel says to Joseph, don't be afraid. And here's the great news. Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. What this tells us is a couple things. That the thing that Joseph needed most in this moment, and the thing that he was going to need going forward, was a certain kind of courage. The angel speaks straight into the reality of, you're afraid. Don't be afraid to take Mary. Don't be afraid to take Mary. Do not fear. God is coming into your life, Joseph. And he is about to do some things that are going to alter the circumstances in a way that you had not planned and you may not like, and you may be uncertain about. Things will never be the same as they were before. Do not fear to take her. I'm not here to give you a new hand to, to, to reshuffle the deck and, and try to give you something better. No, God is calling you to a life of courage. What you need, Joseph, is courage. And I will come and give you courage. So, loved ones, what it means to be a Christian, one of the significant things it means to be a Christian is to be men and women who are faced with circumstances that bring fear, tangible, real, scary, uncertain fear, and to step into it with courage. In the text, I believe we see uh, three particular areas, three facets, three things that, that, that Jesus, people who received Jesus as Joseph was about to receive Jesus must have for the reality of courage to manifest itself. And so here are the three things you need. You need the courage to take on, um, to take the scorn of the world. You need the courage to give up on our right to self-determination and the courage to own our need for a savior. The first is to take on the scorn of the world. 
In uh, verse 20, it says, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. He's being very, he's being very clear. He's saying, Mary, taking on Mary as your wife is going to be one of the most terrifying things because of its implication. Mary is already disgraced. You understand, culturally, no one's going like, oh, right, you're the virgin birth woman. Got it. No one's saying that. No one in Judea is even expecting the God to come as Messiah through a woman in this way. And so no one believes in the Immaculate Conception. No one's even anticipating it. No one's expecting it. She's already disgraced. And even if Joseph marries her now, he can't undo that for her. Now, mostly because people know how to do math. Now, personally, I've experienced that a decent amount in our life. As most of you know, my wife and I, Becky, uh, got pregnant when I was a senior in high school. And so when our daughter Haley was born, I was 17. So, which means that by the time she was 10, I was 27. By the time she was 20, I was 37. So you find yourself, particularly as the years went on, people would be like, wait, you have a 15-year-old? Wait, you have a 20-year-old? And what's funny is that you just watch, I love it because I'm not uncomfortable, it's a reality, God's redeemed a story, I don't care, but it's fun to watch people, you know, because they're doing math in their head, and they're going like, and it's like, yeah, Becky, we've been married, you know, we've been married 25 years, we have a 24-year-old daughter, and usually I just let it sit for a minute, I go, and yes, we got pregnant before we were married, just to kind of like, you know, to settle it down so everyone's okay, because what's funny, but now... We live in a culture where, and by the way, our story is now far enough down the road that all the shame or all the uncertainty or all the fear is, it's just old news. It's not like that in, 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 the near, in the Near East. That shame would have followed Mary, it would have followed Joseph for the rest of their lives. There's hints of it in the gospel as the, uh, as the, uh, the Pharisees take jabs at Jesus saying like, where are you really from? Right? Nobody knows who your daddy is. You know, so there's just, it's in the air. It follows him. And this is what Joseph is being called to have courage in the midst of. He's being invited to say, I'm going to be stepping into something terrifying. If he marries her, he is going to be taking on the disgrace that is already on her. And so what does that look like for us? What does that that mean as we think about our own world? What does it mean for us to take the scorn of the world, which is exactly what the anticipation for Joseph must have been? As the angel says this, the first thing that comes to him is, the world is going for the rest of my days to associate me with this disgrace. Well, for us, um, I mean, if you've if you're someone who professes Christ and say, I, I belong to Jesus Christ and I've given my life to him and I believe I'm going to heaven, I believe I can know God. I mean, most likely, you know, probably maybe not in the circles that you're in right here in this room, but in other contexts, whether it's at work, potentially with families, if you're from the Northeast, um, you know, I just, there's potentially, sorry, just getting Northeasterners, um, but there's just a sense of like, wait, so you're, you're either arrogant, right? Oh, you know God. Oh, you know God. Right. So you have the answers or you're ignorant, right? Either you're a sense of self-righteousness or, or you're small-minded. You're intolerant. One of the significant realities that um, I believe that we're faced more and more with is that to have courage in the midst and, and in, the, in the reality of the scorn of the world that says, what's wrong with you? And maybe one day you'll come to your senses. You can't put all your... Religion is nice. It's just a part of your life. You don't give your whole life to it. Currently, um, 
belonging to Jesus and holding a biblical view on sexuality or scriptures, on gender, on marriage, or on abortion. Those are, those are things that are at odds with much of what the world invites us into, calls us to, or holds as standard. And there's a tremendous amount of pressure. I'm assuming you feel it. To sacrifice or to amend some of our core theology, biblical doctrine, around what will work or what will be, well, just frankly, a little more tolerant, a little less in your face, a little less infringing, seemingly, on, on the rights of other people. There is a, there's a disdain for the reality of saying, yeah, Jesus is the only way. Do you feel it? Do you feel it in your places of work? To be able to say that feels like are you, you don't actually think that, right? Like you're not that narrow-minded, that small-minded. And, and I, I mean, confessionally, I, I'm realizing that over the years, I have erred far more on the side of like trying to make it all okay and to have Jesus be as, as least offensive as possible to you. It's least offensive to the folks that may have some struggles with the reality of like, he's the only way. And it's like, maybe he can come in the back door. The problem, the reality is, is that Jesus doesn't. He shows up smack dab in the middle of Joe and says, this is the reality. The world's going to scorn you in light of me. You must have courage. I don't know that there's a, a place where that's more significant for us uh, within a church as, um, as when we have to step into church discipline. It's tough. I, honestly, we never want to, you know, like, I mean, never want to. We don't want to because we know how difficult and challenging it's going to be. The thought that there is in our culture, a community of people that will hold someone accountable for them choosing to walk away from God and to actually openly sin and say, I don't care. I'm doing what I want to do. Like, it's just against the rules. And yet it's the very thing that God invites us into. And it feels, I mean, it feels uncomfortable. And yet it's one of those things that if you, if you look at the scriptures honestly, you say, this is what God calls us in love to do. And so we're going to need to move in that direction. And, and it will not be understood sometimes, certainly from without, but often even from within. So God sends a son into Mary and it messes up Joseph's world. And I think somewhere along the line, and maybe it's just me. I think that, that maybe, maybe I can have Jesus and everything, and, and it can just be smooth and not, no one's going to be really, really upset, frustrated, struggling. I mean, if we really just talked long enough and had enough connection and you got to see and understand every perspective, you'd be okay with it. And, and frankly, that's not the reality of what it means to walk with Jesus or to know him. One of the things I, I'm noticing I'm particularly recently uh, and I mean, good grief, we just walked through 2016, right? I mean, could, could we have had more polarization from an election standpoint, et cetera? I, I've noticed when it, there was a ton of that within the church, a lot of division, a lot of separation, a lot of people angry with each other, people struggling to understand, people saying, like, I don't even want to be called an evangelical anymore, and other be, people being like, finally, the evangelicals have arrived. I mean, it, it's like, it's, it could not be more disparate. And, uh, and one of the things I've realized that I've been wrestling with is, the reality of what does it mean to call the just and the righteousness, to call justice and righteousness, justice and righteousness, and, and to call things that are not just and not righteous, not just and not right. And, and I think that 
Ironically, whether it's, whether it's our dialogue and conversation about race and about what does it mean for us to look potentially with different goggles and we've had different glasses than we've had in the past, and then at the same time to hold to things that are so, like, I mean, they're just so clear in, scriptures, in Scripture, to have, a, to have a moral compass that says, no, this is not okay. And this is, I mean, it cannot be endorsed as a believer. The scorn of the world is a real thing if you belong to Jesus. If you're going to let Jesus come into your life, this is what it's going to look like. Being associated with bigotry at times, with hate crimes and racism and not wanting to be. I remember there was a situation, we, were, we lived in Omaha in the 90s, and around, around mid-90s there was a, a, um, a, news, a news clip that was talking about this current situation. There was a church that was in the midst of performing the first lesbian wedding in Omaha, Nebraska, and outside there was a group of protesters. The outside protesters have signs that says, God hates fags, and the inside you have a, you have a priest or a pastor that's marrying a lesbian couple. And I, I remember sitting there going like, what do we do? Like, how, how, where do you even stand on the... No, no. Oh, where, where is, where's home? Where's righteousness? Where's, like, how do, you, how do you walk in this world? Do you find yourself not having f- sure where the path looks like and feeling like, what T-shirt do I wear? Do you know what I mean? And it's like, probably none of the ones that are pre-printed, I would guess. When Jesus comes into our lives... He makes a mess, and he requires courage about things that we potentially have never stepped into before. And, and loved ones, my sense is that there's only going to be more and more opportunity for that. And what's great is that it's far less about picketing and far more about actually loving with grace, with, with, with being strong and saying, oh, absolutely not, but I love you. Uh, you cannot shake me. Like, I love you. I'm, like, I'm all over you. You can't get rid of me, but, but no. I don't, this is not okay, and I I don't subscribe to that. And I think there's a better, I think there's another way. We get to do this for multiple reasons, and this is one of the reasons why the gospel, being centered in the gospel is so pivotal, is that the gospel tells us that we should be incredibly humble, because we, it was necessary for the grace of God to come in and rescue us from the mess that we are. And it's nothing that we've done. And so we're incredibly humbled by that, but we're also incredibly comforted by that. And we're given tremendous amount of confidence. So someone who's seated and and rooted in the gospel is both incredibly humble because he realizes, but by the grace of God, at the same time is incredibly confident, has incredible sturdiness internally saying, I am loved, delighted in and accepted by the king of the universe. What can be done to me? That's what the gospel affords us. I got off my notes. So uh, here's here's a, uh, a question for for you. Some of some of us here are uh, short on listening and hearing, but uh, but quick to defensively speak, argue, and attack. Uh, more concerned about being right um, than about demonstrating and showing what love looks like. And then there's some of us on the other side that are long on listening, hearing, and understanding, but silent, rarely lending voice to both the hope that we have in Christ as well as to the magnitude of the palpable offense of the cross. More concerned about being accepted and fitting in. The gospel is always the third way. We talk about this in our staff meetings all the time. It's, it's never this or this, right? Right? 
It's always the other way. The gospel compels us to courage. Joseph voluntarily entered the disgrace associated with Mary's pregnancy. He had to give up his reputation, stepping into the narrative of shame that would be associated with his life for the rest of his day. In a very real way, he had to lay down his life to take the disdain of the world, the scorn of the world that was coming upon him for the rest of his days. So we see that we must have courage. Do not fear to take this woman. Courage to take on the scorn of the world and then courage. We need the courage to give up. I need courage to give up my right to self-determination. Uh, One of the things that you may not naturally see jumping off the text, but in verse 21, the angel looks at Joseph and he said, uh, Joseph, this is what's happened. And you're going to have a son and you are going to name him Jesus. Now, uh, pets get named by their, I'm sorry, pet owners get to name their dogs. Uh, Pet owners shouldn't have cats, so there's no reason to bring that up. Um, (laughs) We can't even edit that out. That's so, so great. (laughs) Founders get to name their companies. Uh, Boat people, which are people who boat by boats, get to, you know, christen their boat. Some very random, weird name, usually. But every parent gets to name their child. And it's not just, well, it's customary. It's actually a sign, a, a declaration of, this child belongs to me. Now, let's just theoretically say that uh, Jonathan Ward, whose wife Mary, who's pregnant with a son, what? Um, I say, Jonathan, your wife Mary, who is pregnant with a son, and she's going to give birth, I hope so, at some point, um, and you're going to name him Matt. Um, And he will be witty and, and awesome. He'll win at cornhole and he'll speak French. I mean, it's... And none of those things are true, but, but, but the... All of you are going like, you have no right. Microphone is not a right. It doesn't get to you. You don't get to tell Jonathan and Mary what they're going to name their child. That's not how it works. That's what's so significant in this moment. The angel of the Lord shows up and he says, listen to me, Joseph. You don't get to name him. He has already been named. No, actually, he is going to name you. He doesn't belong to you you're going to belong to him. And if you're Joseph, this is just a a microcosm of the reality of what he's being called into for the rest of his days. That he is being, what's being taken away from him, what's being revealed to him is that he no longer has the right to self-determination. And he's being invited to have courage in the midst of the fact that it's not as you think it is. You don't belong to yourself anymore. You're going to belong to him. When Jesus comes into our lives, we don't get to tell him how it is. We don't say we're going to have you, Jesus, if you could just, if you just be the kind of person that would be able to make it work like this for me. Now, don't get me wrong. doesn't mean we don't try to do that. But the reality of the gospel says that's not how it works at all. 
you don't get to walk in and tell Jesus how it's going to be. Instead, he actually says, I'm coming in, and yes, I'm about to make a mess, the best kind of mess. And it's going to be my call. My invitation to you is actually to come and die, to take up your cross, to not value your life, but to be willing to just lose it because then you'll gain it. When Jesus comes into our lives, we we don't get to draft up preconditions. And whether or not you're in a situation or you're in a season of life where you're trying to determine whether or not Christianity is something you want to be a part of or if you're kind of open to God but not totally sure, um, you you can't come to Christ and say, I want you, but if. I've got a couple stipulations. As long as I still get to do this and I still get an opportunity to not do that, I don't want to have to do this. So, So if we're cool, that would be really helpful if we can work out that contract. That's not how it works. He, he, wants, he wants all of you, unabashedly. Actually, he doesn't just want all of you. He'll claim all of you. If you invite Christ into your life, what you're saying is, it's all yours. And I just think there is no more anti-American message in the world that I'm forfeiting my rights to self-actualization, to some, some self-determination, that I decide where I'm going to go, what I'm going to be about, what's going to be important to me, that I get to choose those things had a, um, a speaker come um, a few years ago. I was in my late 20s. Uh, he was the, um, his name's Gordon uh, Murray. He's the, Gordon Murray, George Murray. He was the, uh, the president and is now the chancellor, I think, at uh, Columbia International University where I got my, my, uh, my seminary work. And um, he, he came and spoke and, um, and this marked me. I've never forgotten it. He, at the beginning of the time, and I almost had you guys do this, but then I thought, no. Um, but he gave us, all, we all had a sheet of paper on our chairs, so you're going to just imagine this. Uh, he had a, we had a sheet of paper on our chairs, and uh, he said, okay, what I want you to do is we're starting to talk about the reality. What does it mean to belong to God? Um, and he says, I want you to just write at the top uh, uh, what God has for my life. So what God has for my life. And he's like, at the bottom, I want you to write like, you know, like a signature, un, un, just to sign, put a line and write signature of commitment. So I've been in church my whole life, so I know how this works. So I'm like, okay, cool. So he asks, he says, hey, I'm going to give you some time. Just start thinking through, what does God have for your life? So I'm in church, right? So this is probably the things, I imagine the things that would probably come up in your mind and heart. And something like, what does God have for my life? What God has for my life? It has a good marriage. Not perfect, but a, but a good marriage. And, and healthy kids who love Jesus. And um, financial peace. Not too much, because we're in church, you know, again. Um, and and. So physical health, you know, um, I'd like to be satisfied in my work. I think that Jesus wants that for me. God has that for me. A a spiritual vitality. I'd like there to be a sense of freshness to my spiritual life, a a growing love for other people, some some really dependable, trustworthy friends, a solid community. I I think that works. So, you know, I'm writing all these things down. They're all, I mean, I'm not putting like, you know, a red Corvette or anything, you know. Charlie's not here. Man, it's never as funny when he's not here. Um... A Lamborghini. Let's go with that. Um, you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm pious and holy. And so I'm like, okay. And at the bottom, so I'm just getting ready for him to tell us what to do. So we finish the time and I'm like, yes, I am willing to commit to do whatever it takes to make these things happen in my life. Yeah. Yeah. you ready. And he says, okay, um, this is actually what, what you, what you just done there is, is you've, you've laid out kind of a sense of what, what you, we think God wants for your life. And so what you actually are doing is you're at the bottom, instead of, you're not signing your name, you need to just sign the name God. Because we're actually trying to say and do is like, this is what I've decided is going to be important matter and what God has for my life. 
Now, what's funny is that I wasn't even thinking that way, so it just kind of came out of, of course this is what I have for my life. And, and of course this is what God would want for my life. And by the way, those aren't bad desires. But he said, here's what I actually want you to do. This is what it means to actually belong to God. He said, flip your piece of paper over. And he said, I want you to write at the top what God has for my life. And I want you to write the signature block at the bottom. And I want you to just sign the page at the bottom. Just sign leaving the blank blank, saying, God, whatever you end up writing on here, I'm signing already. Guys, that was so marking to me because I was like, yeah, well, what's on the page? Like, what's he going to write? Like, what's, what's coming? I mean, I'm willing to sign. Just, just give me some bullet points. You know what I mean? Like, it, I mean, how hard will it be? How, how challenging are the things that are coming my way? Like, I mean, my health will be okay though, right? I mean, just, just to make sure we're okay. So, you know, it's, it's a silly exercise. But I think the reason it was so marking to me is that it pointed to the reality of the fact that I want to decide, that I want to belong to myself. And I'm unbelievably uncomfortable with the reality that I belong to another. Now, if you'll remember, we actually talked about this as the first question of, of the, of the uh, catechism. Um, that thing we're doing, whatever. Um, uh, what is our only hope in life and death? that we are not our own, but belong body and soul, both in life and death to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. That I'm not my own, that I don't belong to myself anymore. That is, a, that is an uncomfortable theme. How about this? It's an uncomfortable theme if you really like grab it by the shoulders and start to deal with the reality of what it means. It means that he gets to write whatever he wants in those blanks because you belong to him, because he's named you. Because he actually knows you and he has purposes for you that are not the purposes you have for yourself. And, and I think there's, and maybe it's because uh, it's Joseph in the sense of like, he's the one who's going to be directing the reality of his family moving forward, especially in a patriarchal society. And that the angel begins their family by saying, you're not in charge. This is not what you think it's going to be. And I'm in charge of this thing. I'm doing something and it's not what you think it is. takes courage to give up our right to self-determination. Whatever you choose, I will do. Whatever you command, I will obey. When Jesus is born into our life, when he's given the center of all things, you lose all control. And what I want to tell you this morning and in the midst of, I have no idea exactly what's going on in all of your lives and some, um, is that that is good news of great tidings. And that if you could see what all that's going to unfold, that you would choose it too. Oh, probably not in this way. And if your present self talked to your future self, you'd probably be like, seriously, there was no other way. There was no other options. This was good news of great tidings for Joseph, even though it was going to cost him tremendously. Next chapter, he's going to be getting up in the middle of the night and running away for his life with his family. Like, this isn't just like a small, like, okay, well, I guess, you know, it's a little tough. Some people are talking behind their backs. Like, no, it's going to cost him everything. I mean, he had to live in Egypt for probably somewhere around maybe two to three years. It's like having to move, move to Alabama. I mean, you know, it's like, sorry, just kidding. But it, 
an empty page. He had no idea when he said, okay, I will do this, what God was calling him to do. So, so do you have the courage to take the hands off the wheel of your life? This feels like a strange sermon in the middle of Christmas. You know, it's kind of like this is one of those times where we're trying to make our life work. We're trying real hard to make our lives work, to make things that are messy be a little prettier, like to have relationships that are a little bit broken, like be a little more contented. Like we're, we're pretending a little bit more maybe during this time of year. So I find this ironic that this is some of what services is like, no, right in the middle of all this is the opportunity for God to say, hey, you belong to me, and there's some things I actually want to do with you. So to what degree are you approaching the gatherings, the experiences, how you're spending your money, not spending your money, what you're giving or not giving to, what you're anticipating into the new year? To what degree are you going, God, I don't, I don't know, but I'll, I'll sign the bottom. I'm, I'm in for whatever you have for me. And I am scared, but I have nowhere else to go, so I'm going to choose to trust you. And the, and the only reason we don't trust him, the fundamental reason we don't trust him, is because since Genesis chapter 3, we have this, we have this illness. We have this, it's in our blood. We find ourselves believing probably the most fundamental lie. It's all the way at the bottom of all other lies, and that is that if I actually give my whole self, my full, everything I have to God, I'm going to be miserable. He's going to make me unhappy and unsatisfied. The reason I know that is because, one, I talk to a bunch of you, and two, I know my own heart. And if you look at the scriptures, it's exactly what happened. And it happened over and over and over. If you look at your own life, it happens over and over and over, right? Well, God, if I do it, if I do the way you say, or if I follow really what you have for me, I don't know that you're really going to take care of me. The whisper of the serpent was, he doesn't have your best interest in mind. You take care of you. The angel comes to Joseph and says, you're not going to be able to take care of yourself. You're going to have to be taken care of by another. Be of good courage. Do not be afraid. He's going to name you. All shall be well. And all shall be well because the last thing is that the courage, we need courage to own our own need for a savior. And that, that's where it comes in. When he said, the angel of the Lord says in verse 21, he says, it says, Joseph, he will save his people from their sin. It's one of the earliest declarations of the, ministry, the mission of Jesus Christ. What did, why did he come? And, and I think that's probably why um, he's so offensive. <sighs> because if he came just to give some good teaching, something that we could like, a little rubric of decision-making processes that we could decide about how to do things a little bit better so we don't make as much of a mess of our lives, that'd be really helpful and all. But that's not why he came. He came because there was no hope for you. There was no hope for me. It was that bad. It was that hopeless. It was that terrible. Um, uh, Spencer Collins, my good friend, he says this all the time, and I love it. So uh, he, says, he says, you know, when we, we think about, it, about life, we usually say, hey, if you lie, well, you're a liar. But if I lie, well, it's complicated. Right? <laughs> Well, it's complicated. I, I didn't tell the truth, but it's really complicated for me. And, and I actually feel like if there's, a, if there's a reality of like the spirit of the age, it's that. It's like, well, yeah, nobody's perfect. I mean, has anybody had this conversation? Nobody's perfect, but I mean, I'm not as, and I don't do as much. And, and there's just a sense of what used to be kind of common sense, I mean, common knowledge or common dynamic as a culture that there was, hey, something's really not okay. There's a brokenness within me and clearly around me. 
And it must be remedied somehow. That doesn't feel like the common reality. It's complicated. And it's really, I mean, sin is just a rough word to use. I mean, it's funny. I actually, using the word brokenness and using the word sin feel like two very different things, don't they? Like if I'm like, hey, listen, we all know we're all broken here. We're all like, hmm, preach it, brother Matt. You know, like, <laughs> but if I'm like, hey, y'all are a bunch of sinners. Like, you're like, hey, I thought we were in a different church. You know, I mean, there's just a sense of like, come on. Like this, this is just a little, it's a little tough, but <laughs> this is why this is, this is such great news is that he's looking, and that's what I love, is the angel comes and it, and it gives a description of, of Joseph as he's a good man. He's a good man. He clearly loved Mary. He clearly ha- he wanted to do what was right. He's a good man. And the angel comes and he says, this baby is necessary for you because you need rescue. I, th- I think, and, I, and there's nothing wrong with the brokenness. I think it's a very good word. It, I think it's picturesque. But when we're talking about the magnitude of the God of the universe who needs nothing, requires nothing, coming in and taking on human form and lowering himself and taking on death for us to just be like, you know, it's just a couple cracks in the surface. It's like violence to the magnitude of what unfolded on that day. On both of those days, the day where he came to earth and the day in which he suffered and died. It's violence against it. It's calling something unspeakably amazing and almost impossible to understand casual and normal. And it's not. I say, I, know I say this to you guys all the time, and I hope it becomes something that's a mantra for you. But like, you're worse than you think. Cheer up. Cheer up. Like, I got good news for you. You're worse than you think. And, and some of you are like, no, I know, I know. It's like, no, and even you don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But he knows. When the angel of the Lord came, he looked at good Joseph and he said, this baby is going to rescue you because you are lost, not just a little cracked, you are hopeless. And I think about it as we think about anticipating, as we're in Advent, as we're heading towards Christmas. On Christmas morning, the thing you really get to look at is, is to say, we were this hopeless. And I remain this hopeless. In the land of self-sufficiency and capacity and ability, we find ourselves going like, well, I can at least make life work. And it goes counter to the gospel. That, that pushes against the reality of the magnitude of what Christ came to do. And so to the degree in which you're willing to go and say, yeah, it's actually really worse than I thought. Even my goodness, my righteousness is something that I put before God going like, well, at least you're pleased with me now, right? Uh, I can't even do good and not take pride in it. Like, I'm hopeless. That's the invitation of the incarnation. Is that we would see this baby not as like the one I passed on my way and the little crash that has a huge smile on his face and I'm like, "Ah, what? Um, Not not that like, "Ah." no. Like, he had to come for you. He had to come for you. It's, he had to come for us. And it changed everything. Because he came to save his people from their sins, 
You get to look at him and have courage. So, so whether or not you're, you're the courage to be able to actually look honestly at the things that are tangibly sinful, broken in you, the many things, you get to look at the cross and be able to say, and you get to hear him say, Father, forgive them. You get him see him <laughs> long he lay his glory by. You get, you get to see him choose to remain, to, to willingly move and remain there for you. And in some ways, in this little one that arrives is all the potential. It's like that, that, that potential energy, all the potential of what is about to unfold. And it, and it gives us courage. Courage to, to endure and to take on the reality of the scorn of this world, especially when you didn't anticipate it. Some of us pick fights and we expect the fight. It's like, of course you do. It's when you don't expect it that it takes you by surprise. And it costs dearly. God's invitation to us is the kind of courage that can only actually be accessed when we understand fully the magnitude of what he's done for us. So how do we get this uncommon courage? We get this courage by experiencing him, seeing him experience the disdain of the world. See, one of the, what, what the scriptures tell us is that if you find yourself in a place where you're experiencing the disdain of the world, what you get to do is you get to look at Jesus who was also and also experienced the disdain of the world. You don't go like, this isn't fair, or what do I need to do different so this isn't painful? No, you get to look at him and say, I'm joining and participating with him. I, I, talk about like super familiar passage that as this week really hit me. Uh, the John 1, uh, 9 to 11. He says, um, the light, the true light, which is Christ Jesus, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. So I think the reason it felt so connected is it's Advent. Like the light was coming into the world. You can almost feel this like, like, like light was coming into the world, the true light, the real thing. And you feel like you want to smile, you know? It says, and he, and he was in the world and the world was made through him. Still, there's just a sense of like, he's here and everything was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. And I don't know if there's as great of a flop in, in, a, in one verse where you find yourself going like, oh, wait. Like he came, like think of it this way. God sent his son with all of the hope and all of the good and all of the offerings for us of exactly what we needed. Like it's expectancy. It's a sense of like, He's actually here to bring all the good. That's actually what's emanating out of him. And the tragedy. That's like, no, no, thanks. Just why you don't get angry at people when they reject Jesus. It should break your heart, right? Because the goodness, the greatest possible blessing is being missed out on. We get to look at him. How do we get the courage to give up the right to self-determination? Not by being like, okay, I just won't want stuff, or I just want whatever you want, God. No. It's by actually looking at him, choosing to say, not my will, but your will. 
In Gethsemane, what Jesus did is, is he signed the bottom of the blank page, though he actually knew the magnitude of what was about to unfold. And if any one of us was in that situation, we'd have been like, yeah, I'm not signing that page for the joy set before him. So that's the invitation of courage from Joseph. I, I, my hope is, and this is what's been the gift for me, is that as I, as I look at the, the, the birth narratives, as I look at Jesus, as I look at Joseph, how he's entering into Joseph's life, that I see the Messiah Savior in it. Every preacher is supposed to be like, oh, hey, it's the baby that becomes, that goes to the cross. And like, we're trying to, that's not, it's not an idea of something to try and make work. It's the magnitude of the reality of what actually unfolded. He came for you because of his deep love for you. And this is a season where we, we work our hearts into agreement with the magnitude of what God did for us. And that takes courage. That's one of the great gifts of, of, of the table is that it reminds you that you can't make this happen. You can't pull this off. The beautiful thing about the gospel is you don't have it. You can't make this a reality in your own. You can't be courageous. We're afraid. We'll be cowardly. But him and us, he's not cowardly. He moves into our fear and invites us to live with power and courage and strength to have impact on those that are around us. So as you come to the table, receive it as from the one who says, you belong to me. It is well with your soul. Oh, the world may hate you. The world may disdain you. They may, may scorn you. But it is well. I've overcome the world. As the one who says, it was this bad. It's this bad. But this is why I came for you. It's the simple message of the gospel and it never gets old. Lord, may it never get old. So let me pray. Father, we are hopeless without you. Our faith is a gift. There is no courage within us. There's only the magnitude of the courage that you have to give us. So make us men and women who for your glory and for the good of everyone who gets to experience us, finds ourselves courageously trusting you with everything we have, believing that you have everything for us. And help us, Father. Where we are weak in faith, give us faith. Where we can weak in love, give us love. Give us eyes to see. We're beggars, but you have everything we need. And as we come to this meal, may we experience the fullness of you as we anticipate that one day you're coming back. And so we pray even now, come Lord Jesus, in your name, amen.